It's a final word cricket podcast. Uh, just Adam Collins on this one, live from Corfu, where I'm currently on holiday. I definitely didn't intend on recording an app while away, but our to-do list got the better of me during the final week of the Ashes. So here we are, and I have with me Matt Roller and Tim Wigmore. Uh, they're on the show discussing their new book titled White Heat, which is about England's white ball dominance. Uh, specifically, it goes into how they went from relative easy beats at the 2015 One Day World Cup in Australia to dual world champions in the same country just seven years on. It's a great tale, beautifully told by the two of them in print and on this interview. And England's 50-over World Cup defence starts in just two months in India. That's slightly daunting that we're at another World Cup soon enough, but so it goes. Uh, and before we go, apologies that my audio in the interview isn't of the usual standard. Long story short, I did record on the usual piece of kit which I brought over here with me, but I forgot the adapter and the hotel wasn't much help. But it's the fellows who wrote the book who you really want to hear from, Tim Wigmore and Matt Roller, and here they are. It's Final Week Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins on this one. Don't have Jeff with me, but I do have down the line Matt Roller and Tim Wigmore, two returning guests. In Matt's case, he's been a co-host at various intervals on T20 World Cups and whatnot. As for Wiggy, uh, you've been with us every time you've written a book, which is quite often because you churn out one of these about once a year. The recent edition is White Hot, the inside story of England cricket's double world champions. Tim Wigmore, Matt Roller, welcome back to The Final Word. Cheers for having us. Thanks very much for having us, Colin. I was thinking a little bit about where this book sits in the chronology of other books about the England white ball team. So there's 28 days data, or 28 days later, the Tickner Miller special after the 15 World Cup. There's Morgan's Men, or Morgan's Men, and which Nick Holt and Steve James wrote after the 2019 World Cup. So a little bit similar to Border and Beyond and Taylor and Beyond, the two crucial tomes of Australian cricket through the 80s and the 90s, written by Mark Ray, and how they're constantly referred to as is like the definitive text of that era. Do you feel like you've kind of nailed that with this book, that all the research and all the interviews, you can step away from this and be like, yeah, those World Cups, they're, they're done now. It's all in my book or in our book, as it were. Uh, I don't think we're going to be the judge of that, but that was certainly the, the, the idea to tell the, the whole story. So we have we have a chapter on basically England pre-2015 and, and, kind of, and then we take the story on from there. Um, but we were conscious of actually doing a lot it's not there is narrative in this book but it's not that narrative of a book we wanted to explain more why stuff happened than, than how it happened so it, i guess that's how we hope we, we've added value we've really gone deep on what was really going on behind the scenes here so we obviously have you know description you have a chapter on the three farms for example but it's it's about trying to explain how this happens and it's an incredible you think of the image of england, yeah, england are a complete joke in white ball cricket you know only a decade ago the laggards of the world and now they're the, these pioneers and you know you see that in i think there were 70 english players picked up in leagues franchise leagues last last win so the image has been completely transformed and it's, it's a remarkable mm-hmm. tale and in fact we've we've almost become because we kind of lived it sometimes you don't realize just how big a story is but if you if you put it in a global lens it, it is really really incredible the way mm-hmm. people spoke of England and the way they now speak of England and white ball cricket matt where you start is at the 2019 world cup and the success there and the reluctance for this particular England team not to do what others have done in other sports and cricket too, where they're fallen away after a big peak. And the reference point that's used here is the 2005 Ashes, where it wasn't long before England were, were struggling again in Test cricket. And sort of feeling as though with two T20 World Cups in 2021 and 2022, they had a chance for kind of this golden generation to max out and make the most of 
um, the, the opportunities they had with three World Cups in relatively, well, in relative close succession. Yeah, I mean, obviously 2019 from a sort of specific England men's cricket point of view was a, a huge achievement, a phenomenal achievement going from, especially from where they ended up in 2015, not only going out in the group stages by losing to Bangladesh, but also the nature of some of the defeats that turned that into a must-win game. So getting absolutely hammered by McCullum and New Zealand, getting a, a heavy beating off Sri Lanka and off Australia as well in that group stage that set up that must-win game, which they then lost. So mm. to transform that to 2019 was huge in its own right for England. But in a global context, they were the third team in a row to lift the World Cup on home soil. They also, there was this, you know, we, we don't think there's too much to do this, but I know that some listeners around the world have this sort of, you know, does it count thing about England in 2019? What was the nature of the final with the, yep. uh, you know, it, the sort of unknown regulation that they, they wanted on in the end with the boundary count back? And I think while that probably didn't come into the team's thinking, I think generally to sort of cement England as a, a global legacy team in white ball cricket, they couldn't just have one World Cup that they'd won on home soil and they'd actually tied the final twice. They needed to have something more to show for that. And I think that is why, in Tim, in my view, that next stage then became really important of cementing that it wasn't a one-off cycle of 11 players or something like that. It was... A, a, you know, a, a complete transformation in culture that started in 2015, having already had a few sort of false starts, I suppose, beforehand, and then continued over the next eight years it, or seven or eight years, culminating in that final at the MCG against Pakistan, where mm. without, I think, five first choice players, they then lift a trophy that um, I think few people would would dispute that they deserved. I think over, you know, whether or not England were the best team specifically in the 2022 World Cup, I think if you take the two T20 World Cups, 21 and 22, that is sort of narrow and quite a surprise defeat uh, to New Zealand in the semi-finals in 21 uh, and then had some pretty dominant performances in 22. I mean, most obviously the 10-wicket win against India and Adelaide. So, yeah, I think if you if you sort of look at the journey as a whole and then you take the achievement of the next three years, turning one trophy into another one, uh, the status of double world champions and the sort of pinnacle side of that thing, I think that proves, from our point of view, why the story has moved on in the last uh, three or four years since 2019 and why they're no longer just a one-off team. They are a, a legacy team. And yeah, just very, very simply, only six of the squad from 19 are actually in the squad in 2022 that wins in Melbourne. So it's, right. it's obviously, there's, there's common players in both, but actually it's not just the same teams winning both. And that's actually when you get onto a more interesting question of the sort of cultural shape. It's not just a group of, of 12 fantastic players. It's, it's a lot more than that. And in fact, we see that with the, the COVID series of Pakistan in 2021, when you have a whole team that they're wiped out through COVID, have to pick a new squad from scratch and they still win 3-0. We've come to be in a few of those games, and that that does show that something really profound has gone in. It's more than just the kind of luck of having five great players at the same time. There's there's something there's something bigger that's going on, and, and in fact, you know, look what England have done. It it's it's not dissimilar to Australia Test team, you know, around two two thousand when actually they could, you could pick a kind of Australia A team, and they would be very very yeah a real force to be to be reckoned with. I just saw that with the Australian guys in, in county cricket doing so well, and it's similar to that actually. You, you can be a very very good. English T20 player, you ne- might never play for England, but you're still going to actually be worth a lot in franchise leagues and be a really good performer. It's, so that that's what that's what's happened. So it is a, it is a really a stunning shift when you think of you know the IPL. Uh, sorry, 2015 World Cup, only two players there: Owen Morgan, Ravi Papara, had actually played in the IPL before for England. It's 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 yeah, it's it's been a staggering shift in a very short period of time. And even if you look at it going back a couple of generations, and you guys do it, I think it's important to set it out just how. 
antiquated England white ball cricket was through the 90s. You know, the fact that there was still lunch and tea taken during ODIs, the 55-over games, white clothes, red balls. That, that's my recollection growing up of watching England one-day cricket. It's like, wow, this looks and feels like a test match and that test match thinking extended to selection as well. I think the greatest season it was, 99 documentary that we made, Daniel Bredig and Shannon Gill, uh, around the 99 World Cup 20 years on. We used that night Hussein moment, sliding doors moment, as an example with Alex Stewart and you guys do as well, just kind of going back and getting a real feel for how secondary limited overs cricket, despite the fact that England kind of invented short form cricket in a way, the first to have domestic competitions, having it on television from 1968 on BBC Two onwards and uh, having invented the T20 Cup back in 2003, that psychologically it always took a back seat to the longer form stuff and it took a long time to break the cycle there. Yeah, so so basically we have both white ball formats. It sort of fit into the the classic pattern of of sports, which is invented in England. England has a, has a brief period of being good and then perfected elsewhere. So that quickly happens, and we see that with the endless debate about you know watching T Twenty competition look like the suspicion towards the the IPL, seeing the IPL as as the enemy when other countries have a very 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 different approach. Um, and in the nineties, you're saying just don't play a lot of white ball cricket at all. And England very weirdly in white ball cricket in the in um, one league cricket I should say not white ball in the nineties England are very good at home because they play this this weird hybrid game with a red ball in May of course they they're good but they only for ninety nine World Cup they only play three games at home with a, a white ball so they just don't even they have this weird weird contempt for it really um, and it's almost as if they're on some level kind of yeah kind of making excuses for their own failure you know they they, they don't pay for um, white ball specialists to go overseas. So they end up playing their, their test blokes in these, these white ball tours. It's, it's all very, very odd. And it, it actually takes until 2015, really, for because 2015, I think, is important to say, this is the first World Cup when England have ditched the Ashes cycle. So England used to be on this horrible kind of cycle where you play the Ashes, normally the away Ashes, basically, and the World Cup straight after each other. England would be knackered. Even when 2011, they'd obviously won the Ashes down under, but they were still knackered. So England... England they break the cycle, so they have like basically what should be a perfect prep. They have six months of, of white ball cricket, and it, so they've got rid of that excuse. But they're 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 worse they're, they're worse than ever. And that actually, a lot of players talked to us, and they said actually it was good because England. There's a world where England beat Bangladesh, and they kind of stumble into the quarterfinals, and they maybe you know find a way to lose respectably or something. And then you can kind of uh, we weren't we weren't too bad, were we? And you kind of the show bumbles on. I say because they're so bad, that creates the catalyst for change, really. I also like, Matt, that you don't disregard 2010 in all of this. Like, it's a price signal of sorts that it is possible for England to be world beaters. It's not in your DNA to be strugglers. It's just a, a function of what we're talking about here, really. You know, having had that head start with the domestic comp, I suppose that's partly to explain why 2010 was there, acknowledging that other countries came to T20 cricket a little bit later. But, you know, that, that first groundbreaking use of data of Nathan Lehman, you know, left-handers, slower ball bounces, how to game the, the power play, how to game the death over, stuff I don't really understand, but I do know that it was it was um, revolutionary then, even if it's standard chat now, how these things all piece together in, in short-form cricket. And England were a little bit ahead of the curve in 2010. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the the sort of the themes of that 2010 win, there's a lot of similarities with what happened from 2015 onwards in terms of trusting players to to be in charge of their own preparation. Uh, England introduced range hitting before that was really a thing. I remember um, when I was researching this, actually, uh, Nasser Hussein wrote a piece in the Almanac about having watched England training during the 2010 World T20 and talking about the fact that they were sort of losing all these balls and and reminiscing on his own time at Essex, where I think he said they that once they tried something similar in the middle, where they before a one-day game, they decided they were going to try and hit as many balls as far as they could. And the club secretary sort of marched out of his office into the middle and said, Fletch, you've got to stop. We're losing so many balls, it's going to cost a fortune. And that was that for range hitting at Essex in the 90s. <laughs> Whereas in 2010, England were pioneering it. They were having fun. They were on the beach. They were a lot of players actually had come straight from the IPL. That was an unusually timed tournament, I guess, being in the West Indies in the sort of uh, the British early summer or spring. And yeah, a lot of people had come straight from the IPL. Collingwood had been at, at Delhi with AB de Villiers, Dilshan, Saywag, all these guys, and came in as captain and, and basically transferred everything he'd learned from the IPL into the T20 World Cup. And England have always had talented players. I mean, just in terms of size and resources, they should be in the top three or four teams in the world, really perennially in white ball cricket. And it's a story mm. of huge failure that they that they weren't in that category, given the, the, the calibre of players that they've often had. But yeah, finally trusting them meant that they had a, a, an absolutely phenomenal little period. But then it was, it was kind of a, in keeping with the wider England sporting and England cricketing pattern with what happened to that team after 2010. Because Collingwood, I think, captained two more games, maybe three more games. I think England England actually ended up sort of part of that tournament. And then a couple of bilateral one-off games after that ended up breaking a then record for most consecutive T20 international wins in a row. Then I think lost one more game immediately after the eighth. Uh, and then at the start of the next summer, Collingwood got a call from Andy Flower saying, sorry, mate, you're sacked as T20 captain. We want some leadership experience for Stuart Broad, of all people who we think is a future leader for our one day and test team. So sorry, Collie, you're out. Um, which Collingwood said, you know, it kind of went unnoticed at the time because T20 was still seen as very much the, the third most, a distant third in terms of the most important formats. But Collingwood said it was absolutely devastating for him to have reached that point where, you know, having, having, uh, a T20 World Cup on the horizon a year away in 2011, obviously ahead of the 2012 tournament, he was told, you're done, mate. And England very quickly reverted to being a pretty, pretty abject uh, T20 team in 2012 and 2014. It's quite relatable to Australian cricket where T20 uh, internationals weren't, I don't think they were seen as important till, yeah, the middle 20-teens, 2010s rather. You know, that World Cup final in 2010, I reckon if you ask 100 Australian cricket fans about it, maybe 10 would even know Australia made that final. It took a lot yeah. longer for it to to enter the, the public consciousness. The next stage of the book, I know you guys would have collaborated on your chapters, I get that, I understand. A project like this requires, you know, one person to take the drafting process, the other person to come in over the top and and so it goes. But I'm pretty sure the Gladwellian Golden Age chat is a Wigmore chapter because I've read all of your books and I know the way your brain works, Wiggy, which is to your credit that you've got a bit of a theme going here. But yeah, Malcolm Gladwell has written a lot about a concentrated practice and about generations and, and the latter is what you tap into here. Butler, Bairstow, Roy, Hales, Root, Stokes, Billings, Taylor, Vince. They were born within two years of each other. Their mother said there could be sister and brother. They, they, they are right in the same two-year window between 1989 and 1991. And much as it is in in outliers with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, and others having 
been pioneers of the personal computer, but they were born right near each other. Your thesis here is that they were born at the perfect time to be intoxicated by the T20 Cup watching on television or, or being a, a taken in by T20 cricket when they're in their formative years, which informs why they took far more easily to white ball cricket than generations before them. Yeah, so T20 is is part of what we think is, is happening here from, from talking to the players. Another thing is the, the 40 over comp. So there is... Um, oh, don't worry, we're getting there, Wiggy, we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. So we have this this curious period. It is from 2010 to 13, when 40 over is the only form of 50 over, of one-day cricket that's played in, in county cricket. And why that's so important. So you think of the historic failings of England in, in World Cups. It's not that England have really... England normally, it's not that England can't bat their overs normally. It's that they, they bat too slowly and, you know, the... Sri Lanka quarterfinal in 2011 is really a, a you know a prime study of this wing and get to 230 odd and everyone's oh we've done our job and then they lose by 10 wickets so that's so for what this force you over comp it time is a way of a kind of artificial correction for England's historic failing which is batting too conservatively basically and also remember the pitches are an obstacle for England because the pitches generally just aren't conducive enough to, to high to high scoring so the 40 over encourages you to basically it, it you have to bat a high gear as as standard and people talk about this idea of the, the cruising speed which is basically the key this, the secret in 40 over cricket which is what becomes 50 over cricket after 2015 is can you score at a runner ball nigh on without taking risks in the middle overs and that's what these guys all become very very good at and adept at and even little things like the way the fielding restrictions work it's, it's a great learning ground for what 50 over cricket ODI cricket is going to become so we're going to actually completely by accident we should stress because this is only only play it because the ECB wants to be 50 overs the counties kick up a fuss and you know the men prefer 40 overs mm. so it's completely by accident they kind of get Ouch. to position yeah where they're ahead of the curve well yeah this is it isn't it the counties want to play 40 over cricket because the, they get more fans through the gate kind of a flagrant disregard for what's in England's national interest with 50 over cricket at the time and that just back to that that generation of players the case study you use is Alex Hales, which is quite nice. And by the way, I realise, Matt, that the pulp joke from my previous question might be lost upon you, given you're about 21. <laughs> anyway, Alex Hales, who, you know, comes through without the same hang-ups, as he explains to you in the book. Like, he was thinking about, from a very young age, about how hard he could hit the ball. And batting unusually, I suppose, and knowing that that could be okay, because he's seen, he'd seen evidence of it in this new format of the game. So when they're coming through the days groups and playing England 19s together and all the rest of it, he's already turning himself into what we would later think of as a white ball specialist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the, the interesting thing for me in that generation is that you have a real contrast between people like Hales, who is sort of, you know, naturally inclined to play attacking cricket. He sort of takes us back to him hitting balls with his dad in the back garden and always trying to whack the cover off it. And uh, his dad sort of, you know, saying, no, 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 you've got to have a high front elbow and him flagrantly disregarding his advice. <laughs> but then you also have, I suppose, the, the contrast of that is someone like Joe Root, who, is, who comes at it from completely the other angle, where he was brought up to bat properly and, uh, you know, it would do all the sort of old school English cliches like bat your overs. But then partly through access to players in that generation, like a butler, for example, they played at the same under-19 World Cup and through... I suppose, a sort of a, a determination to keep up with his peers because of the fact that there were those guys in that generation. Root then becomes, you know, he, he ends the 2019 World Cup as England's as England's leading run scorer in that tournament. He's an absolute phenom at number three for four years in ODI cricket between 15 and 19. Like uh, arguably the best in the world at a time where there are a lot of very good number threes. 
and he does that in part because of the fact that he he needs to reinvent himself constantly to keep up with his with his colleagues because Root actually he did a great interview with Tim when he was at the ILT 20 in in Dubai earlier this year and says he sort of took us back to a moment that we'd pinpointed and heard about which was that after the under 19 World Cup in 2010 Mark Robinson who went on to coach England women and is now with Warwickshire he was the coach of that tournament and basically did the sort of player debriefs and Robinson says to Root you know yeah at the current rate you're scoring sort of 60 in one day cricket I see you as someone who could be a very good Red Bull player when you grow up but you're probably going to struggle to get into Yorkshire's one day teams Mm. let alone England's so Root sort of said that he, he remembers thinking at the time as an 18 or 19 year old, you know, what terrible management that is telling me how bad I am or everything along those lines. But then actually, you know, it, with hindsight, sees it as a massive moment in his career where it was probably one of the first times where rather than you're so good, Joe, someone had said you're nowhere near good enough. And that was a, a point where he started to reevaluate what he needed to do to, to, to thrive in white ball cricket as a professional. Um, and obviously we know what happens next. So yeah, I think, I think that that golden generation is really interesting because you have some players in it who are, uh, sort of old school, traditional type England players, some who are revolutionary in their own right. And some who, and, and basically they all take the best parts of each other, are inspired by each other and end up having this, you end up having this group of extraordinary batters all in a couple of school year groups who, yeah, win quite a few World Cups between them. Yeah, that, that's a lovely piece of colour that Robbo telling Rudy to mount to nothing. And I get it, by the way, it's not been critical of Mark Robinson. As you say there, Matt, it could have been a difference for Root as far as what he's become as a white ball cricketer. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. We've already touched on the 40 over stuff, but you know, they... They, they come through and need to reinvent themselves and after the 15 World Cup. And that's done initially under Paul Farbrace, who obviously has cooperated quite a lot with what you've done here as England's assistant coach, but he was a stand-in coach for that groundbreaking New Zealand series where they make 400 for the first time. And he's at the top six that day, with the exception of Billings, end up playing in the World Cup finals and, and all the rest of it. But the bit that stood out to me, is, you know, we, we know that story pretty well, is the Jason Roy getting out first ball, but it all kind of being okay. And reading the language back, it reads exactly like what we hear now from the basballers of the test team, yeah, this idea that, yeah. you know, we, we want you to go out there and play you wish to play. And if you fail doing it, you will not be held accountable. Yeah, so that's really, yeah, that's really bold. So it is a whole new new culture in terms of, so Alex Hales and, and Jason Roy are basically told after the World Cup 2015 that they'll be given the rest of the year. There's 14 more ODIs uh, as of the start of the New Zealand series. It's where the revolution really starts. So there's this whole new new level of, of backing. And of course, England already do have these players. So England, there's a Lions tour in January 2015, so just before the, the ODI World Cup where England England go to absolutely smash it, get 370 twice. And this is with guys like Jason Roy, Ben Stokes is 151, not out. Remember, he's not picked in that World Cup. Neither is Jason Roy, you know, Sam Billings, James Vince also. So England are actually, they actually had this generation who are already waiting, waiting to be unleashed. There's definitely a world where England actually with, with, with you know, better selectors and, and everything, they do take some of these guys to the World Cup 2015 and they're probably very raw. They don't want to win the tournament, but they could have got to a quarters or, or certainly even the semis uh, playing this very uh, kind of brash brand of cricket. Instead, these guys are distrusted. It's, you know, in keeping with the old regime. The fact, Mr. Asda Cook, remember, is captain until just before the World Cup, and then he's sort of sat at the 11th hour. But the fact is, England already do have these players starting to emerge, which again, which is interesting. So there's something going on even before you get to 
to Bayless and, and Morgan. So actually the system is already starting to produce these players. It's about then the kind of join up with the the top being able to embrace them. And this is what Morgan does, you know, so well. So it's the whole because a very classic English thing. We saw this with Alistair Brown. I don't know if you remember in the, in the yeah. 1990s. Is a very, you know, a very, very, you know, we, we talked to him. He was he was kind of the Jason Roy of his day, basically. And he's picked and he's told to you know go out, mate. You know, go out, express yourself. We pick you just like like you do at Surrey. Just go go and hit hit. Go and, and smash the ball. He gets 100 in his second game. And he's literally dropped a game later. And it's basically like how can you tell someone to? How can you say you know go out you know go and take risks and then just block someone and just drop someone two games later. You can't do that. That's not how you build a culture. And for the first time, they're actually thinking about, actually also I think they're thinking about things on a four year cycle. So it's a bit of a kind of England are influenced by Olympic sports in terms of actually it's about peaking at a certain time. So England, they, they kind of move beyond the sort of end of short termism. And one of the things that we actually kind of, we'd forgotten or, you know, hadn't never really realized is actually after the world cup 2015, there's this huge change in style, which we know about, but the results are like, they're okay. They're not brilliant. I think in the next 19 ODIs, they win 10, they lose nine. So that's, it's a fun 50-50 record. It's, but the, the, the key thing is the style is clearly working and they're embracing that, that, that style. And that's, that's so different to what we ha- we've had before. So it's a whole new, new way of playing. And England are no longer, they're actually backing their deeds with actions in terms of, of, of backing players and that continuity. And, and actually we see that with, with Owen Morgan a bit like we saw Ben Stokes probably last year in test cricket. So Morgan is almost overcorrecting. So if if Morgan is ever on a, you know, is he too, if Morgan's ever torn between being too too aggressive and too defensive, he always takes the overaggressive option. You know, he's out first ball in, in a, a run chase, starting to to Cal Corner once, but that's kind of okay because it's it's about teaching everyone a house how he wants them to play. It, it, yeah, really, the first time we've touched on Owen Morgan and. He was responsible for some of those poor decisions around the 2015 World Cup. Gary Balance betting at three, you know, not opening with Chris Wokes, who'd done a great job in Sri Lanka, if I recall correctly, in the series that immediately preceded it, that long run up they had that you talked of before, not having James Taylor at three. Like he'd been involved in that former era and suddenly partnered with Trevor Bayless. It was the perfect combination, having that proper four year run of it. Strauss going after a low ego coach who wouldn't be afraid to lose to win. Bayless had shown that in the mix with IPL teams and with New South Wales who'd done well in the, um, I can't remember what it was called anymore. Was it, was it the Super League? What, what they used to call it? When, um, the IPL teams, the Blast teams and... The Champions, Champions League. League. Champions League. Champions League. Oh, Bayless right. had, had, had enjoyed success there. Yet there's this total change going on and Bayless feels like the right man to take Morgan to the next step as captain, having enjoyed success in his own way, in, in a similar way, but in a low ego way too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my, my read on sort of Morgan uh, in the 2015 World Cup, and, uh, we, you know, we've heard him speak in documentaries along these lines as well, is that he obviously inherits a team so late and with an established coach and coaching setup and with ideas already, admittedly, sort of fairly old school ideas for, for the most part. He doesn't really feel empowered to change too much. So he, he's effectively captaining Alistair Cook's team for the most part, which is why you end up with decisions like Gary Balance coming in at number three when James Taylor's done well there and why you end up with, you know, a, a squad filled with 80 to 85 mile an hour right arm seamers and off spinners rather than any kind of left arm or express pace or uh, someone who can spin the ball both ways. Whereas in 2015, when he's retained as captain, which it's actually worth noting, and I'd forgotten the extent of this, how much of a surprise I think it came to some people that Morgan was retained as captain. I was reading, I think I found a newspaper cutting from the Telegraph saying, you know, Joe Root's expected to be named as England's white ball captain next week. And that would have been a classic old school England move to prepare someone for the test captaincy with a year or two of 
50 over and, and T20 cricket. But instead, uh, Strauss, you know, backed his man, kept on with Morgan, gave him a call while he was having breakfast in Hyderabad at the IPL, kind of in keeping with, with Morgan's persona that straight after the World Cup, he decided to skip an ODI against Ireland and stay at Sunrises that year. Uh, and then when they came back, he he had an input in selection for the first time, pretty much. Bayless had also sort of briefed Farbrace pretty extensively on the sort of squad he wanted. Uh, and I think you basically ended up with a group of people who cared a bit more about white ball cricket and also wanted to to think in think big picture, think long term, think without ever sort of daring to say it publicly at the time. How can we make sure that we're in a good position to actually compete in a World Cup on home soil in four years time? Because, you know, having a World Cup on home soil in 2019 was going to be a huge opportunity for England and English cricket. And it would have been deeply embarrassing if they'd been anywhere near as bad as they were in 2015. So, yeah, clearly the the, uh, the partnership dovetailed really well. I think Farbrace in particular does deserve some credit for that first series. I think, um, you know, he, he obviously, he ended up actually leaving soon before the World Cup in 2019. It was a big part of that journey. And yeah, Bayless had, had worked with Morgan before. They knew what each other were like. They knew what they, they sort of aligned in terms of their philosophy and yeah, clearly worked worked a treat in the long term because of the fact that they were able to to back players to give them the confidence that they weren't going to get dropped, which has been such a big issue in English uh, one day cricket over the years. And we sort of skipped over the point about Jason Roy earlier, but you know he was not an obvious. Well, I suppose it was a it wasn't a surprise selection for that series in 2015, but he'd not played much cricket before. He starts his he starts that sort of whole cycle really with a first ball duck smashing bolt straight to backward point. Uh, literally the first ball of the game when England go on to get 400 for the first time. Uh, and he averages 19 for the summer, for the series, doesn't do particularly well against Australia at the end of the summer either, but has basically been told at the start of the year, as has Hales, you guys are going to play every one day international this year as long as you keep playing your shots, which is a, you know, a pretty liberating thing for any opening bat. So Roy's there thinking, God, I'm averaging 19. There's absolutely no chance I'm going to keep getting picked, but he's doing it at, a decent clip and is getting out, you know, caught point off the first ball of the innings, getting caught in the deep when he's trying to trying to hit someone for six. And England say, well, we still back you. We still think you've got the right stuff about you. Uh, and then over the course of that 15-16 winter, they both make good. They both make a couple of hundreds. Uh, and by 2016, they're established as the guys that are going to take England forward. And I think that that sort of consistency of selection is such a key thing that has continued and we've seen that, yeah, as a sort of, particularly in the 15 to 19 cycle, the fact that, that, that you know, you can pretty much rattle off what the team was for the majority of games, with the exception of maybe a couple of bowlers being rested. And I think that's so important. Yeah, it's quite a clever link uh, that you guys make between Jason Roy, given that sustained run at the start of his career, and Ali Brown, who you returned to at, at that juncture. And, you know, like that that idea of getting a long run up and, and, and a long-term planning and, Part of that was central contracts. I didn't realise that Owen Morgan wasn't centrally contracted when he was leading the England one-day team at the 2015 World Cup as captain. So, you know, there's that story going on that, that white ball cricketers are treated more seriously by decision makers at the ECB when it comes to contracting. And they're given more freedom at exactly the same time to make their own decisions around the IPL. Indeed, that's encouraged, whereas in the previous cycle, there was the, the standoff between Peterson and the ECB in 2013, you know, only a couple of years earlier. Now we're into a world where it's like, well, if you want to go and almost use the IPL as a finishing school, in addition to other comps like the Big Bash League, you go with the support of the administrators uh, so long as you're available when it matters for England. Yeah, so there's this, this absolute, absolute shift. And I think that the whole 
where the England view risk is kind of turned 180 degrees on its head. So before you think England playing very conservative cricket, trying to avoid taking risks. But yeah, Andrew Strauss is very good when we, we talked to him. He says, well, the irony of playing risk-free cricket as you perceive it is you actually end up putting pressure on, on yourself because you're never putting your opponents under pressure at all. So then you're you're kind of just, you're walking this, this tightrope and it can go, go so, so, so wrong. And you're never actually putting yourself in a position to actually make it harder for the, your opponents to stop playing their best cricket. So it can actually try and, they change this whole attitude and actually think the, in a way, actually, the the risk, the risk because they've been so bad before, the risky thing is to carry on as you were. So this completely emboldens them. And actually, you see this across a number of different sports where actually the, what what analysts and the data guys would say is the the optimal play the optimal way to play a sport is actually to play it much riskier than than the normal m- normal level. We see that saying basketball going for three is is obviously riskier than going for a two because it's further away, more chance you miss. But actually, the data says that's a better shot. And again, in in T Twenty cricket, the data says actually, for example, if you use a couple of early wickets, you've got to keep on going because if you consolidate, you're just going to end up with a below par score anyway. So. England's whole whole attitude towards risk is is, is is transformed in a way that you know clearly when we talk to guys like Ali Brown and Nick Knight of previous generations, you know they're quite they're pretty jealous because they had some tools that would have really been unlocked by this new culture. Um, but said it's kind of learning from the mistreatment of, of players in the past that actually gets into this this position. I mean, Andrew Strauss is interesting because he talks about how his record is so much better in one day as when he's captain than, than not, and he both average and striker actually and he attributes this basically to you know he obviously knew he was going to stay in the team and that this emboldens him and he and he kind of thinks about how to apply this, this thinking into the, the sort of challenge of building a team and, and in the, there was a little bit of luck in have actually in terms of winning the assembling their bowling attack and and we talked about the kind of all the right arms and England are very conscious about moving away towards more variety but kind of almost more by luck than judgment actually end up with a lot of bowlers who can bat well as well. And this just gives, this again kind of bowls the guys at the top because you, when you have a <clears throat> Liam Plunkett at 10 out of Rashid at 11, that just means you can, you can go, 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 go. And actually in that very first game, it's doing the, the game that kind of changes everything in the, in the 220 for six when they could easily be 260 all out. And then there's a couple of you know, drop catches and stuff and they go to get 400. So, but the fact of having a, a deeper bat line actually I think it's now been established basically a deeper batting line benefits the guys at the top, even if guys at the bottom don't actually bat, they still can unlock more in, in the guys in the top order. With all of this baggage and history, Matt, it seems almost unbelievable that within a year we're at the 2016 T20 World Cup and England get this beautiful free hit, right? Like, remember Owen Morgan uh, when, when interviewing him, maybe not before this World Cup, but not, not long afterwards made some reference to me about, yeah, yeah, we're going to lose games when we get bowled out for 60. It's okay because when we get to the big tournaments, we'll back our style of play. And he backed us straight away, you know. And the enduring image for me in that tournament is Roy destroying South Africa, those beautiful shots down the ground in the semi-final, I think it was, from memory. Uh, and then there's a great quote from Fabi uh, in the book you got here where, in reference to the tournament, it was the perfect storm, intelligent, articulate Strauss, a clear captain in Morgan and a no-bullshit ego in Bayless. Well, that all comes later with Bayless becoming the coach. In 2016, it's a group of much younger players who are sort of learning the script and they nearly they nearly win the World Cup. They're, they're an over away or four deliveries away from winning a World Cup only, what, nine months after uh, the shambles of the 50-over World Cup in Australia. Yeah, and that, that tournament really, the, the sort of, I think the... the phrase that uh, sums it up best was Morgan before the start of it saying that England have to embrace the naivety. There was still at a point where not many of those players had played in the IPL. 
they were still sort of learning the ropes of international cricket in a lot of cases. And it was uh, a, a, a just, an, a, I think, a pretty, uh, you know, a tournament that kind of vindicated everything they were doing by getting as deep as they did because they lost their first game to West Indies. They got Chris Gale, basically. Yep. And then in the second game is the one, the South Africa game you're talking about, where they, South Africa posed 229 uh, at the Wankady, which is a great batting track but you know England an England T20 team would never chase 230 back in the day it just wouldn't wouldn't be something that could even feasibly happen but instead England go out and uh, you know they lose their first wicket two and a half overs in on 48 Roy absolutely takes Rabada and Stain to pieces in the first two overs and then you have someone like Root who comes in at number four in that team actually and hits 83 or 44 playing you know the sort of shots that we've seen him play in test cricket this summer reverse reverse scoops reverse ramps really clever percentage shots as well, hardly faces a dot ball across the innings. And somehow England chase down 230, keep themselves alive, and then go on a bit of a streak, obviously culminating in losing the final to the West Indies. But I think that that tournament sort of perfectly vindicated everything that, that we've seen really about this team. They, they were, you know, they, they needed something to prove that what had happened in the previous 12 months was going the right direction, particularly with the Champions Trophy on home soil in 2017 in the horizon, which was almost sort of a, a dress rehearsal, I suppose, for the World Cup. But then by getting as deep as they did in that T20 World Cup and playing the way they did, uh, again, you know, all the, those tropes about sort of batting depth, Rashid coming in down the order, David Willey, Chris Jordan, all, all bowlers who could bat. They yeah. had this team that, yeah, suddenly looks like a team that could compete in a World Cup for the first time in, in quite a while. You mentioned Rashid, we haven't really touched on him, but the 2016 World Cups, when they really get their shit together with him, like, he, you know, played as early as 2009, he made to do in that Netherlands game, didn't he, where the Dutch beat England at Lords to start the 09 T20 Home World Cup. But, you know, he spent a long time in the wilderness, back in Lions teams and playing for Yorkshire and becoming something of an all-rounder there. But by the time he returns to England, ranks around 15-16, including the 16 World Cup, they are philosophically aligned to a bowler with his bag of tricks, swinging, uh, spinning it rather both ways, bowling at the back of his hand. And he needed like the right handling as well, didn't he? And someone like Morgan, who always embraced the cultural differences within the team, him being from an Irish background himself, but you know, making a virtue of there being so many different players like that. Even last year, I think this was after Morgan had retired, but you know, the very fact that Rashid was allowed to miss a tour in order to visit Mecca, like that would have been inconceivable uh, a decade earlier or even a generation earlier when, when Rashid made his first run as an international cricketer. So he seems to sum up for me on the other side of it. We spent a lot of time referring to, to freedom and and, and liberation for the, the golden generation of batters. But Rashid is the bowler that best sums up what they've been able to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think as well that the, one of the really interesting things I thought in terms of Rashid sort of talking to, um, it was, was when, when we spoke to Andrew Strauss about him, uh, Strauss sort of admitting how he captured him terribly in 2009 because, and I thought this was a, a, a crazy admission because you, you know, you think about one day cricket now and it's inconceivable that a team wouldn't have a wrist spinner, but England just hadn't had any wrist spinners. And he said, right. I just didn't really know what to do with this guy. You know, I was like, right. Okay. Someone who can allegedly turn the ball both ways. Like, how's this going to work? Just a complete, you know, it just did not compute in Strauss's mind that he had this guy in his team and, you know, he, he didn't set the right fields. He had a couple of bad games in 2009 and then suddenly, bang, you're gone for six years. Another really interesting chat along similar lines I had was with David Parsons, who was the uh, ECB's performance director in the, in the role that Mo Bobat served in for a while. 
Uh, but at the time when Rashid was breaking through, was England's spin bowling coach. And he said, you know, he held his hands up and said, I definitely got stuff wrong with him because the whole focus on the spin bowling program at the time was we need to have a spinner who is going to be able to play Red Bull cricket. He's going to be able to consistently bowl overs. And the whole focus with Rashid was on his stock ball. Can you consistently get your stock ball on a line in length that's going to trouble batters in test cricket? That was it. That was the only thing that mattered. And Rashid was probably never someone who was going to be, you know, he was ne- he wasn't Shane Warne. There's only one Shane Warne. There's very few wrist spinners who have succeeded for a long time in Test cricket. It's a really hard thing to do. He had a decent Test career in the end, but that was never going to be the pinnacle for him. Whereas what happened in 2015 was that there stopped being a focus on what Rashid couldn't do, which was bowl 25 overs in a day of line and length and go at two and a bit and over. And there started being a focus on what he could do, which was rip it both ways take risks, toss the ball up and bowl teams out, take wickets. And Paul Farbrace would speak about this as well. He said, we would say to Rashid, we would rather you took four for 80 than none for 50 because you're in the team to take wickets. If you take four wickets through the middle, our seamers will do the rest for you. And, and we'll bowl teams out. You can rest- you don't just have to restrict runs by focusing on restricting runs. You can restrict runs by bowling a team out in 42 overs. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the other part of that, the other side of the coin is Chris Wokes, who we think of as, well, he's not very rainbow rhythms, is he? But, you know, he doesn't feel very baseball. He doesn't feel very Owen Morgan, yet he's been a consistent feature of all of this for these captains to been able to deploy him to bowl so consistently. And, and, you know, dual world champion, player of the Ashes for England. I mean, Chris Wokes has carved out a wonderful career, and that included the 2019 World Cup, where he effectively led the England attack, where they come in as the, the number one team in the world. They are the game changers. They are the favourites. They are the hosts. Not a long way from 1966 with the football team, and, and you make that link as well, that, that Bayless had to embrace favouritism, had to get them into the mindset of knowing that they were the big dogs who people were coming out to try and beat. They didn't handle that pressure particularly well, I don't think, in 2017, at the pointy end of the Champions Trophy, which served as something as a, uh, as a, of a, of a, not a free hit, but a, a preview edition, if you like, for the 19 World Cup with everyone in England playing 50 over cricket in, in 2017 at an ICC tournament. But talk about peaking at the right time. That 19 semi, they played the perfect game or, you know, of their generation comes against Australia at Edgbaston in the semi-final. And sure, we know that Bayless tells them not to get on the piss too much. Don't celebrate anything quite yet, but, like, if they started this journey trying to, you know, like sprinters do, run your fastest race in the 100-metre final of the Olympic Games, they were running about as fast as they could in the build-up to that final at Lords. Yeah, I mean, that that game is an unbelievable performance. You know, we talked with, 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 uh, with Chris Rose and he said it was his, it was obviously his own ground and his first ball is actually half volley. It's smashed for four and, he, and, he, and Bayless is in the crowd. Bayless actually is kind of chuntering, you know, what the hell are you doing? Um, but then he adds his fantastic performance, get, gets, gets three for, I think, and, you know, his whole, you know, all his sort of friends and family there. And it's it's kind of a perfect day for him. And as you said, you know, works is a really important part of the journey. I think one of the crucial things to say is that because of the rest of the attack having variety, because you've got, you know, Archer by this point, of course, you've got Wood, you've got, um, obviously, you have a left armor, you'd be, you've got Plunkett in the middle, and you obviously Rashid. That actually makes the quite orthodox skills of works. It makes him more effective because he's complemented by, by, different around him whereas if you have you know four right armors doing pretty much the same thing like in 2015 he's going to be a bit less effective that he's taking the new ball as well so he, he's also kind of emboldened to, to do what he's best at um and yeah because england are in they're in a precarious state over the tournament they lose these, these three matches and have to win two games against india and new zealand just to get to the, the, the semis and then they, they just steamroll australia and it's 
it's something yeah it's a very not a not a, you wouldn't associate this with England and its own farm to be so so clinical and it's they're, they're dominating completely you know Jason Roy comes up and I think smashes three sixes in a row and Steve Smith's you know, rolling out some some leg spin and yeah it's a perfect performance it actually it ends actually with quite quite fittingly with Owen Morgan and um Joe Root together at the crease, and these guys are the masters of the kind of the, what in call the cruising speed in the middle overs. They, they just managed to score at a runnable against spin without without taking risks. Um, so their average is about sixty together as a pair at a runnable um, in that mm. that whole cycle. So they're they're absolute clinical middle overs. So England have this; they go very very hard at the top, and actually they kind of carry on going hard, but in a way that is is sort of very smart as well in in, in the middle. Um, and Root, actually, all that work he's done going back to 2010 on expanding his game. He's never been the most powerful player, but he's developed all these, you know, lovely laps and sweeps and stuff. So he he can score very, very, very quickly without without taking risks. And that's one of the secrets as well, because actually it ends up England have to win some games on slightly more difficult pitches. So actually, England, England end up needing a really a variety of skills in, in that in that tournament, which I think kind of makes it more satisfying than having just one playing in, in one tempo. I like that you don't invest too much in the 19 final from a narrative perspective. I know you do it in the Ben Stokes chapter, but it's not the the guts of the book because you know that, that story's been told so well before. Instead, you keep the the story moving a little bit. And on to 2021, you guys have already in this interview talked about that 2021 series win against Pakistan under COVID conditions, where an England B England C team still win three 0 because of the perception, right? Like you know these these players have been in the IPL who have been picked up for the England. I mean, or they've been in other T20 comps around the world because the impression is that white ball cricket being done in England better than anywhere else. So they, they may not have played for England often, but they've played in in these tournaments. The depth is there. And and that's also apparent in the T20 team when injuries do hit and they don't have all of their resources at their disposal when they, when they go to the replacements, it's broadly okay. Now, they don't win in 2021, but boy, they, they cause this enormous existential crisis for Australia in the middle of the competition. They hammer them by, I think, was it 10 wickets, 9 wickets, whatever it was, with Butler putting on a clinic after the bowlers went to work and you know I know they don't play Australia again and that all caps for nothing because they lose to New Zealand in the semi-final and, and and so it goes but you know the very fact that they've got Butler to the top now I know that this for a time was debated amongst you guys who watch T20 cricket far closer than I do about the best use of the greatest T20 striker going around in Joss and whether he's better to be used as a finisher where what he does so well in 50 over cricket or go to the top of the list. Well, the numbers bear it out, don't they? That he's averaged 62 across the last two World Cups, top scoring in them, striking at 148. That they, they got that bit right at the right time in their development to try and rebuild ahead of two T20 World Cups back to back. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think the, the, the Butler promotion was a, was a huge thing. Um, I think if you, if you look at it in isolation, people always said, what's the best way to get the most out of Joss Butler? And there was this big debate at the time, as, as you discussed, about sort of, um, you know, should be, it, Butler's clearly the best finisher England have. Should you therefore hold him back and use him in that role? Or should you maximise the number of balls he faces and maybe therefore uh, squeeze out an opener who could face a lot of balls? And actually, the guy who ends up being squeezed out, sort of contrary to what we've said about how much Root reinvents himself, is Joe Root. Partly because of the fact he's got the test captaincy at the time and obviously has a huge workload, but also partly because of the fact that he's as a T20 player, it probably doesn't go quite hard enough for the template that England want to use, particularly from 2018, which is the sort of the moment where there's that big shift in what goes on. So 
Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, those two decisions have to have been made in, in sort of in conjunction, really. Butler goes up to open and once he starts doing that more regularly, very quickly, I think pretty much two or three games later, loses his place in the side completely. And that sort of sets England on a path for T20 cricket where they go even more aggressive. Uh, and that obviously culminates in what we see in 2021 and 2022, where a team without root in it and that's quite changed from the one that we see in 2019 has a sort of even more um, attacking approach and even more attacking philosophy with the bat. And in the build-up to 2022, it's kind of a funny build to that World Cup, isn't it? Because, yeah, Matt Mott comes in as the new coach. There's this perception in the discourse that, well, the England Test team's pretty good now. Um, of course, the England white ball team have turned to shit when really, you know, if you're listening to what Rob Key was saying throughout that, he didn't really care about the bilateral series. It was about, well, not... Uh, uh, it would be underplaying it to say it was about squad rotation, but it was about the try and, trying to find what was going to work best for England at the tournament in Australia. And even though it doesn't start especially well, that, that run losing bilateral series, they do have that day in the Netherlands where they nearly hit 500 in a one day, the closest they've gotten to 500 since bashing Australia around at Trent Bridge in 2018. But that, that's when Owen Morgan decides to pull the pin. So, you know, Josh Butler, it's a different kind of responsibility when you're captain. He's got the new coach of Matthew Mott. What did you learn when, when researching the book about uh, the importance of them restarting under a new leadership axis before a World Cup only a few months away. Yeah, so M- Matthew Mott, he's he's chosen as coach because obviously with Australia, he's got a very good, well, he's got a fantastic record and actually his, in sort of business jargon, which we don't like, but he's sort of, he is the guy who's taken a team from from very good to, to, to great before. Um, so that makes him a good fit. He's kind of a low-maintenance coach as well. So he's not, you're going to kick up a storm about not having a couple of guys for like, you know, the odd, you know, bilateral series. He knows he's going to be judged on how he does an ICC events. And actually, there's a little bonus that his first tournament is in Australia, obviously, which is another little thing. And so he has this, this series in the Netherlands when, when Morgan retires after the, the first game, oh, after, after, after two games, sorry, but we, we don't know it for a little while afterwards. And there's, there's this, this shift. From Morgan to, to to Butler, obviously Butler has been vice captain for a number of years. There's a lot of there's a lot similar between them, but there are some some differences too. I think uh, Morgan actually, in terms of of data, probably does use more does use data more than than Butler. I think Butler is very big. We we talk to the bowlers, he's very big on them being so flexible. You know, being able to he's you know so in T Twenty he loves bowls. He can bowl in all three phases of the game. So we kind of we've moved away a little bit from the kind of era of your guy, your bowl, bowl three in a power play, whatever, it's become a little bit more more fluid than that. Uh, obviously, guys still have their strengths, but that that's interesting. So we're moving to, you have six or seven bowlers who can all be used in different phases um, and you can actually adapt based on conditions, opponents, just gut feel and who's doing well on the day. And that that's a really... So it it's for the bowls, it's actually quite demanding in terms of what's being asked of them, but it's it actually, it gives England an, another edge in that, that tournament because England... And then, England also, England have all these all-rounders, which is just a real, you know, it helps so much. So they're kind of picking a 12, 13-man team all the time. And that gives them mm-hmm. such an advantage. They have, they have they have all these rounds. And so they have all these bowling options and they battle eight or nine as well. And that that is, you know, that's almost a cheat code. You have Liam Neverzine, for example, you know, one of the, the most in-demand players in the IPL. You know, he he goes through the tournament with T20 World Cup 2022. He faces very few balls and, you know, bowls a few overs and as well. But like, he is almost a bit part player through no fault of his own just because he's batting at six or seven he's rarely needed and he's a kind of insurance option option with the ball so that that attests to how much depth they can have and in all rounds are so so crucial and they can have a lot of those 
Hi, I'm Natalie Jamanis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Now, another major part of the build-up was Alex Hales. He was locked when Owen Morgan was captain, and then the path reopened. Rob Key made it pretty clear there was a route back to the England T20 side, and Johnny Bairstow's broken leg, which opened the door for it before the World Cup. Perfect timing, really. Instrumental in winning that semi-final against India, but... Yeah, that would have been challenging too. Ben Stokes was on the record in the documentary last year, the year before, rather, calling Hales, you know, my friend at the time and so on. So, you know, there was some bad blood clearly still there with Hales, but yet they kept it together and he proved to be instrumental when it mattered most. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I was surprised by the, the sort of the speed of that reintegration. I was on that T20 tour to Pakistan and, um, you know, immediately it felt like he was back part of the group. Obviously, he spent a lot of time playing with quite a few, or with and against quite a few of those players in leagues and in county cricket and in the 100 uh, in, in the years after. And I think, to be honest, I think once you got to that point beyond, you know, where the, the World Cup was or the ODI World Cup and the failed drugs test was so far in the background, three years gone, I think it ended up being a pretty smooth reintegration. And Hales actually started that tournament relatively slowly, but then had two massive innings in terms of the context of the tournament right at the end of the group stage. And this is actually a common theme across World Cups. And something I thought was very relevant to this Ashes series as well is that England, in both the World Cup wins and in this Ashes, have played their best cricket when they have had a sort of um, when they've had to double down on their style because the consequence of defeat is it's all over. Uh, so in 2019, they get to a point where they need to win their last two group games and then the semi in the final. They do it. In 2022, they need to win their last two group games, the semi in the final, and they do it. And then obviously in the Ashes, didn't quite happen, but they went 2-0 down and then, you know, pro- played probably their, their best game in, you know, the sort of de facto semi-final for them, Old Trafford, where they get 5-9-2 in, in double quick time. And Hales, yeah, obviously he plays two brilliant innings, I think gets 52 and 47 against New Zealand and Sri Lanka at the end of the group stage. Really sort of complimenting Butler as well, who, who by this stage is sort of evolved T20 player who occasionally starts slowly before getting into his work. And then, yeah, the, the two of them obviously dovetail spectacularly at Adelaide. Hales' his favourite ground. He goes and shoots, uh, I think, one under par in the morning uh, with Luke Wood playing with some members of his favourite golf club in Adelaide. Uh, then pops down to the oval with his kit and uh, whacks England to a t- 10 wicket win in uh, 16 overs against India. So I think, um, you know, pretty much the, the best day of his life. Probably, it, it, Actually, while we're recording this podcast, he's put out a statement saying he's done in terms of international cricket. So ah. ends up being the uh, the end of his career, um, more or less. That, that Obviously, you know, it doesn't score runs in the final, but this sort of brief comeback is it for Hales. And I think, you know, that it ends up being a, a perfect farewell for him to international cricket. That's really interesting. And I mean, I know we've had multiple conversations about where cricket's moving with respect to international versus franchise. This might be well part of that, that slipstream too, although we won't go into depth on that today. That might be the topic for another um, interview at some point for you guys when coming on the show. Uh, yeah, that, that 2022 roller coaster in the World Cup, I hadn't really thought of that, but you're right. Like, you know, they were one wash out away from being gone, weren't they? At the MCG against Australia. And, and it was the same with India at um, Edgbaston in 2019, that must-win situation seemed to, to galvanise them and, and so it went. And, you know, like, you talk about leaning into the best of themselves. Like, where, you know, where someone like David Milan fitted in, into all of that, like, you know, perhaps the most maligned T20 cricketer England's ever produced, despite the fact that he's been number one in the rankings. I know you guys, the analytical guys, always duke out whether he has a spot or not. But Nathan Lehman, who's been crucial to the success in, in both of the World Cups, clearly has plenty of faith in this guy and, and playing what's known as the anchor role, I suppose, in, in modern T20. And, and Milan 
being there in Australia last year and playing his role as well. Yeah, so I think the fact Milan became you know n- number one ranty twenty batsman in the world and did well in franchise leagues around the world without ever being kind of entirely a lot for England again speaks to England's depth. And he's he sort of had to, um, yeah, he was kind of never in there ideal plans if you like but he just forced his way in he just he just kept on scoring runs and he, he just yeah he, he did so so well and and he just kind of made he forced his way in and then yeah he, he's ended up with a, a world cup winner as well but he was um yeah he was injured unfortunately for the semi semi and final so he didn't wasn't able to, to play on those but he yeah a good example of England's depth and kind of just what, how much it takes to get into that side um and yeah, because remembering, you know, no Johnny Bairstow was, you know, was a huge, you know, all those injuries they had of Bairstow being, being one of those. And England were able to kind of, yeah, be, you know, to overcome them all, really. So England, yeah, probably five first choice players, we reckon, weren't in their 11 at the MCG. And they, they still won actually fairly comfortably in the end, which is all, yeah, again, a testament to what's happened and it's more than just... A, a very small core. It's actually a, a much bigger project. It's those who wouldn't necessarily play, isn't it, Matt? I mean, the 2022 final, there are some similarities to 2019. They had the perfect game against India at Adelaide that you referred to before with Hales, but others playing their role too, Butler, Rashid, etc. Then at the final, it's Slam and Sammy Curran. You had three for 12 from four overs, doesn't concede a boundary with Ben Stokes, who, all things being equal, I guess it's possible Stokes wouldn't have been in the best first choice T20 team either. You might tell me that's wrong, but it feels like the way that Stokes' game had evolved that, um, you know, with so much pressure on his body playing across three formats and by that stage being the test captain. But Stokes picks, you know, the World Cup final for the first time to make a half century in that format of the game uh, at, at international level, at least. And, and doing it with Sam Curran, who wasn't always part of the side, had to reinvent himself, had to become more of a risk taker himself, bowling um, not only in, in the power plays, but at the death as well with those pinpoint Yorkers and the two of them combined to be the most influential men on the night in a pretty hard-fought final against Pakistan. Yeah, and I think for, for that uh, sort of England regime, I think current success was something that they took a lot of pride in because he wasn't, as you say, an automatic pick. He had actually a pretty poor home summer. He got dropped for a game against India at Trent Bridge, which he was annoyed about. Um, uh, but he had some chats with Martin Butler in Pakistan, which was obviously a pretty intense environment where, you know, due to security reasons, people are locked up in hotels the whole time. And he spoke to them and, and sort of sort of worked out what his role might be. And I don't think anyone had him cast as a death bowler. But um, even though Curran maybe doesn't come across as the most sort of um, intelligent guy in interviews, that sort of sounds harsher than it's meant to be. But he, he he's someone that everyone involved in the game talks about having this amazing cricketing IQ and that mm. he's someone who he won't necessarily be someone who's constantly asking an analyst for videos, but he retains so much information about where opponent batters hit the ball or how, you know, how he needs to adjust his game to certain conditions and all the stuff that some people really, you know, need reasserting before they can remember he immediately thinks right so it's big that way this is short this way therefore i need to do this and this is going to be a good option against this guy because i remember that time where he whacked me for six over square legs so i'm going to have to do this this and this right answer is back of the hand slow ball and he's caught deep in wicket whatever it is something like that so i think for for that regime yeah he, he's a massive part of it and i think fitting that he ends up as player of the match in the final and winning player of the tournament uh and yeah on stokes i suppose he, he almost by that stage was a was a, a strange fit in that team, but I think England have sort of seen in terms of you know I know the sort of the, the whole idea of clutch players and clutch moments is some something that the odd person disputes, but I think no one can deny that in a World Cup final run chase there are a few people that you'd want more than Ben Stokes 
he obviously opts that the right way to go rather than uh, what most England players would do probably in sort of trying to keep the scoreboard going pretty fast. He, he, take, he soaks up the pressure in the middle. He has a moment where he nearly throws it away, where he, he hits one just short of Baba Azam at long off off Istikar, who has to completely over when Shaheen goes down injured, but ends up hitting a six in that over, completely relieving the pressure and then obviously seeing England home with the winning run. So, yeah, it, it's quite a fitting uh, quite a fitting pair to, to have starred in that final in some ways. And who knows how that might go this year, right? So they're defending the, the World Cup in India in, in October and November, the 50-over version of it, that is. We know that the Owen Morgan era bled into Test cricket, the extent to which Basball will return and provide some favours to the one-day team. I suppose we're, we're going to find out in, in the months ahead whether they have enough in the tank. That golden generation might be one question. Another might be whether they, they turn again to a clutch player in Ben Stokes, who has retired from the format, whether he might go to India for those seven weeks and come out of retirement. We know that he was the one who got Mo and Ali out of test retirement only as recently as a couple of months ago. I mean, where do you think all that will land, fellas, with your parting thoughts? And, and do you think they've got what it takes to defend this tournament? Or is that maybe one World Cup too many? I think the sense on, on Stokes is he probably, I don't think he'll, he'll come back. I think it would, I think his body might need some some kind of work in the, the months ahead. So I think it's unlikely he'll come back. But I, what I do think is that there's hopes of Joffre Archer, of, of him be, being fit, at least maybe to take as a sort of 15 player and only play in the second half of the tournament. I think he's good enough for that to be worthwhile. Remember, it's a very long tournament. So I think if England have an attack with with Archer, Wood, Wokes, Adil Rashid, suddenly that's, which again is kind of bringing the, back, bringing the band back together yeah. from four years ago, but that's a good, good attack. And and the batting prowess is, is still very, very much there. Harry Brook probably... You know, he's broken into the side recently. Uh, again, Mil- Milan, who's who's actually older than some of the golden, he's born a couple years older than the golden generation, as we, we call them. But he's, he again has made himself very hard hard to overlook. So the huge amount of of parent in the batting, obviously with, with Butler, you know, probably arguably being the best ODI batsman in the world at, at the moment. So yeah, it, I think with the format, Ing will be very disappointed not to get to the semi-finals, and then you're you're two games away, and then and then actually you're really in the conversation amongst the, the very very best side there. I feel I think that Aussie side actually oh nine to sorry nine nine to oh seven you know to win they won thirty four World Cup games in a row. So I, th- I still think even if they win the World Cup, Australia still out on top. But I think you could make a strong case of England win that they would kind of assert so West Indies in the seventies and early eighties and actually become the, the second best white ball men's side of all time. And look, it's a bit of a, a cop-out answer for me, but I think Tim's point about um, the fact that England will be hugely disappointed not to reach the semi-finals of a World Cup, probably it, it cements the fact that this team has come so far. If you think going into any previous tournament, you know, it, it, England would have thought, oh, if we get lucky, we might scrape out the groups, whereas now there is a, a, a sort of bare minimum expectation of them reaching the semi-finals. And I think you'd get to the point where there would be a lot of disquiet if England somehow didn't reach the semi-finals this time around. Obviously, in knockout games, things can go against you, but I think that's a bare minimum expectation now, which is not something you'd have said for England white ball cricket in the past. And I think probably shows, as hopefully the book does, just the extent to which England have, have reached a complete new plane in white ball cricket and that there is this expectation around them. It absolutely has done that. The book, as I put it on camera again, is called White Hot, The Inside Story of England Cricket's Double World Champions. Matt Roller, Tim Wigmore, congratulations. It's a fantastic book. And as I mentioned off the top, it'll sit alongside those other tomes of eras and it'll be, I'm sure, the definitive history of its time. So thank you for spending uh, this time this afternoon coming and telling us all about it on The Final Word. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, enjoy, Corfu. 
Final word, cricket podcast. Thank you to Tim Wigmore and Matt Roller for being excellent guests once again. I suppose we'll have Wigmore on uh, in about a year from now when he publishes his next book and Matt Roller will be a regular guest of ours as we work towards the one-day World Cup, which begins, I think, on October the 4th. Jeff and I are intending on getting out there for the last two and a half weeks and that's all thanks to our patrons, patron.com forward slash the final word. We've been blessed with loads of support from people around the cricketing world during the ashes and we've got a lot coming up through the month of August as well. So stick with us and if you like what we do, please do sign up, patron.com forward slash the final word. All the links are in the show notes and it lets us do all sorts of interesting things. For instance, interview Stephen Fry, which uh, dropped into the feed last Thursday, I think it was, and has done really well. Lots of people have been in touch about that chat. So if you haven't as yet, uh, do yourself a favour and, and treat yourself to around an hour and 10 minutes, I think it was, of Stephen Fry talking cricket and plenty else as well, as you'd expect with a man of such experience in so many walks of life. This week coming up, we have, what are we? We're on Monday here, so we have another weekly show. Jeff will be recording that when he's back from his mini break. Then we have other interviews dropping into the feed. We'll have Ark. We've got the Calling the Shot series that we're going to be doing a little bit of as it was recorded stuff with Daniel and me. When I get back from holiday, we'll be dropping that out through the second half of August and into September. So giving a sense of where we were when we recorded each of those episodes and broader background on how we selected interview guests and all the rest of it. I, I reckon there'll be quite a few people who are listening to this who won't have a clue what I'm talking about, but Calling the Shots was the documentary that Norcross and I made, the audio documentary uh, that we made, the seven-parter, uh, during the first lockdown about the 100 year history of cricket broadcasting so uh, one for the cricket nerds and tragics out there which I'm sure most of you probably qualify as alright that's enough from me thanks for listening this has been The Final Word we'll talk again very soon so you know